Good morning. Our scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And these verses speak to the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones of dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heavens, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for the incredible music this morning. Thank you so much, Emily. I remember when I was in seminary Dr. Gordon Thompson and some of you may have crossed paths with him over the years was telling us in class one day about the last Sunday at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta when Dr. Martin Luther King Sr. it was his last Sunday and here was a man who had lost a son to drowning and one to assassination a man whose wife had been shot while she was playing the organ at the church and he was preaching, and then he stopped preaching, and he began to sing, and he started to sing the last stanza of that, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. And I thought if someone who had been through so much could sing that, how much more can we sing, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor for all that God has done for us and for God's walking with us every day of our lives. And thank you. Karen, so much for the beautiful reading of the scripture this morning. I want to catch us up for just a second on where we've been. This is the last sermon in a series based on Charles Wesley's hymn. Some call it the National Anthem of United Methodism, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues. And this could go on for much longer, so maybe you're glad that it's not. If When you get the hymnals back out there, if you turn over one page, uh, there are like... 12 more stanzas in addition to the ones that are on page 57. So he was such a prolific writer. But on the first Sunday of the series, we talked about, oh, for a thousand tongues. If we had a thousand tongues, not a thousand people gathered, but a thousand tongues, would that be enough to praise God for God's greatness, God's awesome power and love? And then on the second Sunday of the series, we talked about, my gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim. That's a heavy calling for any of us, clergy, lay people, all of us to share the good news. And we need help. We need one another. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news. And then the third Sunday of the series, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. And goodness knows our fears are easily wrapped up especially in a time like this. And Jesus can calm, charm those fears. And then on the fourth Sunday, he breaks the power of canceled sin. 
We don't have to carry the burdens of days past. Those sins are canceled. They're wiped out. They are crossed out by the cross of Christ. Then last week we combined the fifth and sixth stanzas and we simply talked about broken down and fixed up and spent a lot of time talking about how he causes the blind to see. And hopefully we had a chance to look into our own, not just mirrors, but our own hearts. And for the Holy Spirit to reveal our blind spots to us because goodness knows we all have them. I know I do. The seventh stanza today, and we just sang it, and we'll get back to it in a moment. But I want to talk about camp meeting just a little bit more, and then we'll turn that topic loose for, for a while. In their book, If Saddlebags Could Talk, and it's a fascinating book if any of you would ever like to, to borrow it. Frederick Mazer and Robert Simpson have a chapter on camp meetings. So I thought on this, our last Sunday in the camp meeting series, I want to begin by sharing with you just a little bit of their thinking, just a few of their short stories, and then we'll begin to look at this stanza for a few minutes. Camp meeting throughout the 19th century was the premier agency for evangelism. It was a way you got a lot of folks together and shared the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel and what that meant in the lives of people. Bishop Asbury, remember, was in this country and was in the state of Georgia and in the southeast for quite a while, early in the days of our church. He extolled the worth of camp meeting, and he had an expression that he used I've thought a lot about, and maybe you've heard this before. He said, camp meeting, the great plow that tears all of us up by our roots. Now, that's an interesting expression, isn't it? A great plow that tears us up by our roots. He says these meetings are forts and fortifications. And by the middle of the 19th century, camp meeting became markedly institutionalized, reaching the point where manuals were published about how you held a camp meeting, where the benches were pressed, how the arbor was built, everything lined out just like folks have a way of doing and just like we have a way of doing in the church across the centuries, things become institutionalized. And goodness, even how far apart the benches were at the camp meeting, that was all spelled out in the book, and you had to be by the book. Now, the early part of the 19th century, these meetings began to move towards some extreme emotionalism, something that makes some folk uncomfortable in worship. An incident in 1810, chronicled in a treatise about an Albany, New York camp meeting, illustrates camp meeting emotional fervor. And this is an interesting story, I thought. I hope you do. After a sermon, a prayer meeting was held down front, down front of the camp meeting in the arbor. And this writer says it was a bedlam of bedlam, some singing, some praying, some jumping, some clapping, some wringing their hands, one falling here, another falling there, crying out, glory to God. I am happy the Lord has entered me. And then bursting forth in song and praise, shout, shout. We are gaining ground. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Satan's kingdom's falling down. You could just picture the, what was going on there. Now, camp meeting was not always a place of serenity and peace. Outside the camp meeting, sometimes there's a place called the devil's camp on the outskirts where the scoffers came to carry on. And according to the history, they would sell liquor, gamble, and generally tempt the faithful. Such ne'er-do-wells were a constant bother to the preachers at the camp meeting, as you can imagine. But on occasion, the harmony of camp meeting would be disturbed by other religious groups 
who would disagree with the Methodists. Imagine that. Now, one experience of this nature may be found in the autobiography of Peter Cartwright, one of the early preachers in our movement. He had quite a reputation. He had no problem in calling out dissidents and calling them down and holding them accountable, calling them out in public. He described one camp meeting that he said was numerously attended. attended. That's sort of like a ministerial estimate for the year-end report. It gets numerously attended. He had no problem with, with these folks who caused so much trouble. And he said there was a good and gracious work of religion going on among the people. And then a group, well, he names it. It's another denomination. I won't call their names. We'll just call them troublemakers for the sake of our time together today. He said a group of troublemakers tried to break up the meeting, but they were no match for this wild man preacher. An old woman began to shout and speak in an unknown tongue. And he said, just then my attention was drawn to the matter. I saw in one moment that the whole maneuver was intended to break up the good of our meeting. I took hold of the old lady's arm and I told her she needed to hush that gibberish. Then I would have none of it. That it was presumptuous and blasphemous nonsense. She took me by the hand and said, I have a message directly from God for you. I said, I will have none of your messages. If God can speak no better than through the medium of an old hypocritical lying woman, I'll hear nothing of it. <laughs> he needed to go back and read that book about how to win friends and influence people, I think. He was, uh, he was missing some of that. He brought the episode to an end, brought it to an end with this. He said, this is my camp meeting, and I will obtain, I will hold on to the good order of it. Don't show your face here again if you do. You'll reap the consequences. Tranquility returned. Cartwright reported they all disappeared and a great many were converted to God and the church was built up and the spirit was made known. Peace, harmony, and love of Jesus returned to the camp meeting and Peter Cartwright had threatened to destroy anyone who would disrupt the order of that meeting. Thank goodness our camp meeting services this year have not been anything like that. I hope I'm not a lot like Peter Cartwright, but you got to admire his courage, even if he got out of bounds sometimes. In Christ your head, you then shall know, shall feel your sins forgiven. Anticipate your heaven below and own that love is heaven. Stanza 7 of this hymn originally was stanza 18. The opening line of that stanza used to say, with me your chief, you then shall know. Chief is Charles Wesley's expression characterization of himself as the chief of sinners. An expression from 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And that's in one of the earlier translations of scripture. I'm not exactly sure when that all changed around. When it changed from with me your chief to in Christ your head. But the current way that this stanza is in our hymnal leads right into our scripture lesson for today that was read a moment ago. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I cannot hear this passage without my mind wandering back to Genesis chapter 1. And John chapter 1. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. And then from John, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was 
God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. If we want to know what God is like, as one writer has said, we have a spitting image in his son, Jesus the Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Incarnation, the theological word we use to talk about a concept that's just way beyond our level of understanding as human beings. Incarnation, word become flesh. One of my favorite old stories that's been told so many times, it's about worn out, but it still has a little good in it. A little girl, afraid to go to sleep in her room all alone at night. And she calls her mother and says, Mama, I'm afraid. And, and Mom says, Darling, you don't have anything to be afraid of. God is right here in this room with you. And she said, Mama, I know that, but I need a God with some skin on. Sometimes we need a God with some skin on, some skin in the game. And Jesus put it all in the game, put it all on the line for us. For in him all things in heaven and on earth are created, visible and invisible. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Love Paul's description here. And again from John chapter 1, all things came into being through him, and without him, Nothing was created. Nothing came into being. The pre-existent Christ. The co-creator with the father of the entire universe. And the church has always searched for ways, searched for words to talk about all the facets. How awesome this amazing God is. And we always come up short. Our words fail us. We know what we're trying to say and do, but we don't quite get there. All of our efforts fall short. But we are compelled by curious hearts and by searching minds to keep looking into the depths of the mystery of our God. He is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. In Christ your head you then shall know, the hymn writer declares, agreeing with Paul. That Jesus the Christ is qualified, the only one qualified to be in charge. Head of the body, first place in everything. Is that the way it is? Is that the way we would like for it to be? If Jesus moves to the front of the line, to the top of the list, then what's going to have to be relegated to a lesser position? And we begin with our own hearts, always a good place to start. Our lives, our habits and hobbies and hopes and hungers, all of these things give a pretty clear picture of our hearts. How do we spend our energy? How do we spend and invest our resources? What are we passionate about? To whom, to what are we intimately devoted, ultimately devoted? In his book, Momentum for Life, Michael Slaughter, and some of you may remember when he was pastor of the Ginghamsburg Church, United Methodist Church in Ohio. Quite a writer, quite a preacher, quite a guy. I was in seminars with him a time or two. He says that the devotion and passion are twin emotions of the heart. Powerful motivations that create the energy and the momentum of our lives. And many anointed leaders of God have discovered that emotional passion 
is a far greater persuasive force than cognitive belief in determining our life's direction and behavior. He said devotion is what you care about. The focus of your deepest desires. People can sense your devotion. People can smell your passion. What really moves you in this world? He said devotion is about ultimate values. It reveals true belief. Your greatest enthusiasm reveals your true object of worship. Whatever you worship drives you. Motivation is boiled down to passion. Your passions more than your beliefs determine your life's actions and your life's directions. We don't need to increase our beliefs in God. We need to increase our passion for God. Is Christ in charge when it comes to our own hearts? He's head of the body. He's first place in everything. Is Christ in charge when it comes to our homes? And I'll refer back to Michael Slaughter's book for just a moment. He said the same principle works at home. Our children pick up our passion, what we really believe in, what we get excited about more so than just hearing our words. They're more influenced in their worldviews and life values by the object of our devotion than by our stated beliefs. And we work so hard sometimes that we want it all figured out. We want to be orthodox. We want to have right beliefs about everything. And in our homes, children maybe not watching that as much as they are what excites us, what motivates us, what stirs our passion for music maybe, or money, or movies, or athletics, more so than our beliefs. And sometimes they struggle with our beliefs, and sometimes they tune out our beliefs because we simply state them, and they don't see our passion for our faith, and for what moves us, and for what saves us, and gives us our hope. I would guess that most of us have a blessing before a meal of some sort. But how often does that become just a nod to God sort of moment? And then we go on with conversations and other things and forget that we even did that. Like, we better do that. God might get us if we don't do that. But then our thoughts go everywhere else. And then we consider involvement in those things that strengthen our faith. And all of the other activities that scream out for our time, what comes first? What comes first? Who's in charge? To use a preschool expression, who's going to be the line leader? Is it going to be Jesus the Christ? On the home front, on our home fronts, who's most likely to break in line in front of Jesus? Head of the body, first place of everything, is Christ in charge when it comes to his own body when it comes to the church, the body of Christ. In one of his books, The Body Being a Light in Darkness, Chuck Colson, and some of you remember him, and remember his writings, he said this. He said, the church is not a democracy and never can be. We change rules and practices and sometimes, heaven forbid, we sing new hymns and use different styles of worship. We can change forms, but not our foundation, he said, for the church is authoritarian. It is ruled over by Christ, the head of the body, the head of the church. And this thought came to me the other day as I was thinking and writing and in conversation. 
the difference in the two words ownership and stewardship and how easy it is for us to say and for me across the years to talk about my church as if I owned it. God has called us to be stewards of the church. He's entrusted it to our care. We're not owners, we're stewards. There's a big difference. And I hope you'll wrestle with that and think about that with me over these coming weeks. So what's the appropriate image for us here? Jesus in some military dictator's uniform with a firearm on one side and a sword on the other? Or Jesus, CEO behind the big mahogany desk on the top floor of the tallest skyscraper in the heart of the city? Jesus, who though in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And then my favorite story, and I know I've told it too many times, and I'm hoping some of you have forgotten it, but let me just tell it quickly again about the guy who had gone to work in the big corporation and he started off in the mail room in the basement and walking through the cubicles one day down there and everything sorting the mail. He saw a bug on the floor and he raised his foot to stomp the bug and the bug spoke to him. The bug said, whoa, if you'll spare my life, I'll grant you anything you want, any wish. And of course the guy said, well, I don't know if that's true, but a talking bug's pretty cool. So he reached out and he got the bug, put it in a box, kept it in his desk, one day he decided he was tired of that mailroom. He wanted to be up on the next floor and wanted a promotion in the company. And so he took the bug out and asked for that, and it happened. And it happened day after day. He had moved from one floor up to another. He had more help, more administrative assistance. And pretty soon he was in charge of the entire corporation. Had an office in the penthouse. He had every amenity you can imagine that a corporate CEO would like to have and more. And one day he was walking around and surveying his territory and he saw a door he had never seen before and he opened it and there was a stairway and he started up the stairway and he tripped, stumbled over somebody in the stairway. And he said, who are you and what are you doing here? He said, I work for you, sir, in this company and I come up here on my lunch hour every day into this stairwell where I'm alone and I pray to God. And the guy said, what is prayer? And he told him, it's communicating with God, listening, speaking. And then the guy said, and who or what is God? And so the employee tried to explain to him, God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, the whole universe at the hand of God, all powerful, in charge of all things. And so the guy went back to his office, got out the bug, Woke the bug up. It had been a long time since he talked to him. He said, Bug, tomorrow when I come into work, I want to be doing what God would be doing if God were part of this corporation. And the very next day, he found himself back in the mailroom. He was in the form of God. He did not require, regard equality with God as something to be grasped. And then I put a little epilogue on the story and I'll end with this. They're in the mailroom and somebody is asking a friend, he said, 
Who's in charge down there? Him? Him? He has no form or majesty that we should look at Him. There's nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. Tell me the truth. Who's running this show? Him? The one from whom people hide their faces? Okay, he said to your friend, I've had, you've had your fun. I'll give you one more chance. Tell me who's in charge down here. And he told him. And the guy said, yeah, right. Imagine the guy with those scarred up hands being in charge. Amen.